Amen. So transformation. That's a, I love Transformers. You guys, like, you guys ever play with Transformers as a kid? Okay. You do? You did? Well, I still do. So there. You still do? All right. <laughs> so, you know, Transformers, you, you, you start as a truck and you end up as a cool robot. There's nothing cooler than that, right? To this kind of transformation. And um, we, as people, kind of need to go through a transformation because we're born and we grow up. And one of the things that, that we have with our growth is we just kind of figure that we are in control of our lives. We figure that we are, we get to decide what we do. Because you go to school and they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you know what I answered when I said, when they answered, when they asked me that when I was a kid? I said, I wanted to be a whale. Because I didn't understand, you can't pick that. You're not that in control of your life. You can't decide what kind of mammal you are. Um, so transformation, we have to be transformed from thinking that we are in control to understanding that God is actually in control. That's one of the transformations that happens. And when we, when we realize this, when we go through this transformation, it really transforms kind of all that we are uh, and everything that we think and what kind of people we are. So we're going to be talking about transformation today. So let's go ahead and just get into our text in Ecclesiastes 8 and see what it says. Who is like a wise man, Solomon says, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. So our topic here is this change that happens in our lives. And he, so Solomon starts out by asking, what is a wise man like? Um, and what he says is that true wisdom makes a man more gentle and kind. Wisdom is, he's now describing it or likening it to a change in someone's character, a change in someone's uh, actual being or identity, what comes out of their face. Have you guys ever known someone that's just got an angry, bitter face all the time? Just angry? And then he's describing some, like a transformation that would happen in their life where it softens, it's now full of light and joy, and when they're talking to you, you're like, I like talking to this person because they're not just down in the dumps all the time, but they actually have some sort of inner glow that seems to be coming out. This change from kind of what a broken person may be to uh, different is we call sanctification in Bible terms, which is a transformation uh, of a person's life, sanctification. And he says here that it's like, it, it's, it's like your face is shining. Your face is shining. You know there was another guy whose face shined in the Bible? Uh, I'll give 32 Jesus points for whoever can shout it out. <laughs> Good job. 32. Oh, you have to split them. It's like bingo. Two winners. So Moses. Moses, yeah. Um, just kidding. Jesus points aren't real. I just make that up. Doesn't count. Okay? Yeah. There's no such thing as Jesus points. But I do it all the time just because it's fun. Um, yeah, there was another guy who shined. His name was Moses. By the way, 
Light travels faster than sound. Do you guys know that? Science lesson. You get this for free. Okay. That's why some people appear bright until you hear them speak. Ooh. Right. Nathan, we're going to have you speak more and more <laughs> as we go on. <laughs> All right, so I'm, we're going we're gonna to divert away from Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read to you the story of Moses when his face got all shiny, all right? Uh, Exodus 34, it says, Now it, it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai uh, that and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain. So these are the, the Ten Commandments, okay? Moses has just received the Ten Commandments from God and Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, his, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Now, does this mean Moses was like super like angry before, and now he's like nice, or is he actually glowing? I don't know. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, the children of Israel came near, and he gave them uh, as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with them on, with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Super important, okay? He put a veil on his face. But wherever, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whenever he had been, whatever he had been commanded. And whatever, whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. So this is what I call shiny, shiny Moses. I like shiny, shiny Moses. Um, God, just by spending time in God's presence, God gave him a little bit of his glory, a little bit of who God is kind of rubbed off on him because he was close to God. But it says that Moses had to put on a veil. And uh, it's, it, it makes it sound in Exodus like he was doing this to like help out the people. Like, oh, I'm so shiny. I'm going to put on a veil so that you don't have to see how shiny I am. But we actually are going to find out in just a moment that that's not why Moses was doing it. Moses puts on a veil to hide the fact that the, the shininess wears off after a little bit of time, that it didn't last. In other words, the shininess didn't come from within Moses. It was just because he was near to God. Okay, so he wears this um, veil because it only lasts a little while and it starts to fade. Now, if we fast forward to 2 Corinthians, we're going to see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He talks about this thing and teaches us what it means. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not steadily look at the end of what was passing away. What does that mean? It means Moses was embarrassed that he, his glory, faded away, that he wasn't 
good all the way through, but his glory faded away. He says this, or it keeps going uh, at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Such massively important words for us to know and understand. God has supplied something to us that is better than what Moses had. Shiny, shiny Moses has nothing on you. What he's given to us is a never-ending glory, a true wisdom, a life of value and worth that comes from the Spirit, from inside. It's not something you can work from, and it's not something that's from outside in that just like, oh, I was near to God for 10 minutes today, so I'm shining. That's not how it works. He says he's made a new way where he changes us and he abides with us on the inside and he never leaves through Jesus and what he has done. And that that is the real thing that Moses longed for, that he wanted to have. Jesus does this work of transforming us from not shiny to shiny. But the shininess isn't like you guys see Moana? Yeah, that's all I can think of right now is the guy saying, shiny. It's a great song. <laughs> well, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the internal light of true goodness that, that Jesus transforms in us or gives to us. Jesus takes away the veil so we can see what's true. He produces the life and glory inside us so we don't have to fear that it will fade away. When we don't understand God's grace and and what God wants to give to us, what happens is we feel like our relationship with God determines, how much time we spend with God determines how, how shiny we are, how much of God we get. When God doesn't work that way, he says, I give you all of me, and I love you, and, I've, and I'm not going to withhold anything from you. And when we spend time with him, it just helps us to understand all that God has promised to us and already given to us. We are not ever earning more of his glory, more of his work, more of his blessings. You cannot earn God's blessings because God only works by grace, which is a free gift. He never works by us having to earn something, okay? Very clear. Moses got a foretaste of what God intends us to live with every day, his life or what we call his glory. He plants it inside us like a seed in the dirt. And we call this united closeness. We call This is what God wants from us is he wants to be one with us where he abides with us and, and is, draws near to us. All right. All right, let's go back to So now we've seen Solomon said that your face can shine and you can experience this shininess of transformation uh, with God. 
Now we're going to see some things that um, Solomon is going to teach us uh, of what this transformation looks like, how we can tell that we're being transformed. All right, it says, I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. Okay, so if you read this just like Proverbs, you'd be like, this is weird advice. Or maybe it's good advice, but that's, that's if we just look at it at its face value, like these are just wisdom Proverbs. But what Solomon is really trying to tell us is that the world is full of kings, okay? These are people in authority. Some good, but mostly bad. We call those politicians. By the way, why did God make pigs before politicians? Because he just needs some practice. Or what's the difference between a politician and a flying pig? Just the letter F. Think about that one. What he's really saying, guys, is that we are not in control of who is in control. We are not in control of who is in control. Uh, But we do know who is really in control in the world. Again, we can live with humility um, and trust in God, and he will take care of us. He is always the one that is actually in control. So this is describing what a transformation, what the, what the transformation looks like when we, um, when we start to follow the Lord, is we realize, I'm not in control, and the people who look like they're in control are not in control. But I'm starting to learn that God is actually in control. How about that? That's kind of amazing. He goes on, he says, A wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment, because for every matter there is a time and a judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. For he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war. And wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. Again, Solomon is saying here, very simply, we are not in control. In this life or under the sun, which is a constant theme in this book, we are not in control. You can't stop bad things from happening. You can't force good things to happen. You're going to die, he says. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes is so uh, blunt. I love it. You're going to die, and you can't stop a war. There's going to be wars in your life. Bad people are going to do bad things. We never even know when a global pandemic is going to appear. Solomon says that we can't know what's going to happen, and we can't really change anything that happens when it does happen. But... Remember what he's talking about here. When, the, when we take away the veil, 
Or in our text in 2 Corinthians, it said, to take away the veil, you just have to add Jesus. So when you add Jesus to the equation, then we can see more, or then we can see accurately or truly what is going on. We can see that he is actually in control of everything. He can redeem bad things. Oh, my life is so full of bad things. Okay. Add Jesus to that equation. How do I do that? Well, Jesus says, I work all things out for the good to those who love me and are called according to my commands. Jesus, when you add him to it, you understand that he's in control, that he can redeem things and turn things around. Oh, this horrible thing. I just, I, I got cancer. I don't really. This is an example. But, oh no, something bad happened. But you add Jesus to that equation, he's in control. If it's time for me to go, I'm going to go. If he wants me to stay, then it's going to be for his glory. Whatever happens, he's in control. And whatever happens, he does because he loves me and he cares about me. And he's going to take care of it. Adding Jesus to the equation is taking off the veil so we can see what is really in control, who is really in control. He can bring about good things that I can't. He can take a spiritually dead life like mine and transform it by his unique and creative power. And that's how grace works. That's how all of Christianity works. It is never what you do to convince God to help you or what you do to change yourself. It is always, always, always Jesus's power and love freely given to you. Who does he give his power and love and transformation to? Those who are humble and those who will put their faith in him. So humbly trust in the Lord and he does the work of transforming us. He helps us to understand that he's in control and he is doing that. He he has all the power and control. He knows me, he loves me, and he's called me by name and asks me to humbly trust him. There's your transformation. That's what wisdom truly is. Are we going to humbly trust him? Because you can't control life, Solomon says. You can't tell when anything's going to occur. occur. You can't stop a war. You can't even stop death. It's just, it's a mess. This life is a mess. But God is in absolute control, and it's going to be okay. He goes on. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness and uh, that's talking about their funeral, and they were forgotten in the city where they had done so. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So here we have an interesting phrase, fear God. 
You guys ever heard that? We sang it, right? It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And if, and if you don't understand what that's talking about, you're like, God wants me to be afraid of him, which is not true. That's not what it means. He's not talking about you go to a horror movie and you get the tingles all up your back and you're scared because of fear. That's not what the fear that he's talking about. The fear that, this, that the Bible talks about when it says to fear God or fearing God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, what it means is that if we walk with him with humility or you could say um, a healthy respect for him, knowing that he's God and that he is always in control. What, what, what Solomon is specifically talking about here is how he is in control of everything. So to fear God means I, I understand that he is in control. And I'm okay with that. Here Solomon teaches that the wicked waste their life like a shadow has no substance. Um, someone says, I'm going to give you a Tesla. Tesla truck, because they're awesome. And they, and they take you out to the Tesla farm, and I don't know where they grow Teslas, and they, they say, here, come pick out your, your truck. And so you're walking, and, and then you start to touch one. Oh, don't touch that. You know, you can only have the shadow that the Tesla creates. That's a bummer, a huge bummer, because the shadow is pointless. You brought me all the way out here to this farm, and I hate you now. Right? Who wants a shadow? Who wants a shadow of a life? Who wants their life to be described as a shadow? Well, that's what Solomon says happens when our life means nothing because we're committed to wickedness instead of to walking with God. That's what he means. Um, no relationship with God, no knowledge of God that leads to a shadow life. No matter what we do or accomplish, he says it's all a waste. Evil does not pay off because God sees and God refuses to let the lives of the evil have eternal significance. Do you guys know how much longer eternity is than this life? It's eternally longer. It's a lot longer. <laughs> it matters so much more, eternity does, than, than this 70, 80 years is nothing compared to eternity. And God says, it's going to all play out, Right? If you, if you want the true substance of life, it's found in God and in God alone. Jesus says, I, guys, I, I get this. I love you, and I want to give you an eternally valuable life, and we call that glory. I want you guys to know that that's what that word means. The word glory means heavy. Th that person's life is just heavy. It just matters. When they run into you, it's not like a feather brushing across your face. It's, it's, it's a real life. When I talk with them, there's real depth there. And so that's what glory means, is a life that is like a steak instead of cotton candy. When you're really hungry at the fair and, you, and you, you're going, you, you, you pass by the cotton candy and you're like, oh, yummy, but not satisfying. But if you're really hungry, you get a steak, and you munch down on that steak, and it's awesome, right? It truly satisfies you. 
guys, did you know I own a bunch of cows? And um, very important thing just happened. My cows wandered into a field of marijuana. They're down in like southern Colorado. Um, and I can tell you that the stakes have never been higher. <laughs> Thank you. I was waiting for the boo. Who gave me the boo? Good job. All right. <laughs> um, so this life of like a steak life, right? A heavy, you know, 16-ounce life, we'll call it. That's the type of life that man was created with in the Garden of Eden. That's what we lost when we fell in sin, is we lost this life that had a glory or a weight to it, and Jesus brings that back. This is the transformation that Jesus gives us in our life today. He says, I can take you from a shallow life to a deep life. Spending time with me, uh, learning of my love, which passes all measurements, it will expand who you are in dimensions that you can't even imagine, that you don't even know that you, you have. All right, the next text here says, there is a vanity which occurs on earth. There are just, there, sorry, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. And I said, this is also vanity. So I commend enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. So if I were to summarize this, I would say you won't always see the results of your good life or your evil life here on this earth. It might, you might be a good person and bad stuff always happens to you. You might be a bad person and it seems like good stuff has always happened to you. But this life is not what it's all about. It might seem like nothing good ever happens to you. Or it might seem like everything you do is blessed. These are not measurements of who is actually loved by God. God is in control. And at the judgment day, everything is going to matter in your life. Eternity is where it counts what, who you are. So don't freak out about all these little things that you cannot control like whether you won the lotto or whether you died young or all the things we can't control. Don't freak out about it. Trust that God is in control. He says, really, the only way to do it is just enjoy your life. You know, enjoy what you can. Enjoy your family if God gives you one. Enjoy your work if God gives you a job. Enjoy your blessings. Let God take care of every single detail. Stop worrying about it. That's Solomon's big lesson. Who needed to hear that today? Stop worrying about it. What do you think you're going to save your company from falling under, you know, going bankrupt? You're not in control. You think you're going to, you know, cure COVID? You're not. You think you can even control whether you get it or not? God says, "I'm in control." So the real depth of life comes from trusting that he is in control. He's, in, he's uh, in every single detail. Then Solomon says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God. 
that a man cannot find out what uh, out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Okay. We are still discovering new things in this world. In 2020, the California Academy of Sciences described 213 new species that were discovered in this planet last year. There were 101 new ants. I thought we knew all the ants. I had no idea. There was 22 new crickets discovered, new species. There was 15 new fish, 11 new geckos, 11 kinds of sea slugs. Whose job is that? I am searching the oceans for new kinds of sea slugs. There were 11 new kinds of flowering plants discovered, um, eight beetles, eight fossil echidnoderms, seven spiders, spawn of Satan. <laughs> I'm sure he's responsible for those seven new breeds of terror. Okay. There's five new snakes. Not as bad. Some people hate snakes, though. There's two new kinds of skinks. And if you can tell me what a skink is, I'd be impressed. Two aphids, two eels, one moss, one new kind of moss, one new frog, one fossil amphibian, one seahorse, one scallop, one sea biscuit, <laughs> which is a.k.a sand dollar, and one sea lily, and one coral. So Solomon says, you're never going to even understand or know everything that God has put on this earth or how it works. But Solomon says, I wanted to know how everything works. And so we have in Kings, it talks about how Solomon, he spent years and years investigating plants and animals and people, and God gave him more wisdom and understanding than anyone. And he says, you know what? It's impossible. It's just too much. It's just too deep. You know, he's, Solomon specifically wanted to know how God operates or how sanctification happens, how, how this transformation happens in our lives. But he says that's a well that's too deep to find a bottom of. It's a, it's a painting that's covered with a veil. But what do we do? What do we get that Solomon didn't get? We get... Jesus. Solomon lived 3,000 years, two, two and a half thousand years before Jesus, okay? And he was looking at the way things are from a humanistic perspective. And what we get is we get Jesus, and what Jesus does is he removes the veil so that we can see how all of this actually works. We can see that what God has really been busy with. We can see all the prophecies in the Old Testament and all the promises and all the work that he planned and all that work that he accomplished to get Jesus here on the scene. And then all that Jesus did, all this work that he did to accomplish a great thing called our salvation. 
God promised Jesus would come. He took special care of the people of Israel for like 4,000 years to protect them so that Jesus would be born by this people God promised so that we would know who he was when he came. And when Jesus came, he did all the work that needed to be done, all that we could never do, all that we could never earn, all that we could never become, he was all of it for us. What work was that? We needed a redeemer. One person who could pay all the debt that we had racked up. Our credit cards were maxed out, and we needed someone with a credit card with no limit to pay our debt. How much debt did we have? Well, it was basically infinite. You know, just imagine the price of each and every sin and rebellion against God from every person who's ever lived all added up. And Jesus says, I'll take it because I love each and every person. So he took it. And on the cross, all the sin of the universe was gathered together and like a funnel put in his mouth. He just received all of it into his body. And as he was broken and, and uh, punished for our sins, for all the sins, he had nothing but love for us. And that was God's solution to all the sin problems of the world. Every problem in the world. It was Jesus hanging on the cross, being punished for our sins. Then he died so that we could know that our sins also are done away with. And then he rose again by the power and gift of God so that we could know that we could live a new life that's transformed like death to life. Like Jesus was transformed from dead to living, you also have the promise of God. You put your hope and faith in Christ, you will be transformed from dead to alive, spiritually. That's how all of this works. He did the work, he earned the paycheck, and then he spent his paycheck to redeem you and I. He became poor so that we could become rich. He poured out his life so that you and I could be filled with his life. Anyone who can see this and understand it has been already drawn by God. God is already doing a work in you because he loves you and he's chosen you. God loves you and he's done this for you without ever being asked. We never asked him. He initiated all this. He said, guys, this is what I'm going to do for you. And he sent Jesus. God loves you. God wants to keep working in you and keep transforming you. And he says, all of that continual work in your life, all of this continual transformation is a work of his grace. So what do we do? We're done with our Bible study. We finished chapter eight. But our question is then, what do we do with this information? that God loves us so much, that God has given us Jesus Christ to remove the veil so we can see how things really are. Well, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What does it mean to be in Christ? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sin? That he was God who offered himself as your substitute because he loves you? If you believe that, you are in Christ. You have been brought in him as well. You are, if you believe that, you are a believer. That's what a believer is. All, and he says, if that's true, you are a new creation. There is nothing from your past that God will judge because it's already been judged. God is never going to punish you for anything you ever have done or will do. Why? Because God already punished Jesus for you, and there's no such thing as double jeopardy. There's no double punishing of the same thing. You are literally free. And amen, that's right. And we don't deserve that. What have we done to deserve to be set free of everything we've ever done? We're a God who's truly holy and can't accept any sin or unrighteousness even before his eyes. Yet we, dirty, rotten us, are set free. And it's just so beautiful what God has done for us. So he says then, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. So all that we've been talking about today is that Jesus, or God, has been coming after you. He loves you. He wants to transform you, and he is going to do it all through Jesus and Jesus alone. He doesn't need you to do nothing. He doesn't need it. You don't need to add to what he has done. He will do it all for you. And then it says, and he's given us freely, given, that's a gift word, given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that Christ was in the world reconciling the world um, to himself, not imputing or charging their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So he says, this is the whole deal. God loves you. He's forgiven you freely. And he wants us to go out there and tell everyone in the world, God is not angry with you. God is not mad at you. God wants to know you. And God is, is freely inviting you to be forgiven of all your sin. The world has sneaky ways of trying to get around this. They'll say, well, I have no sin. And that's just stupid. It's just dumb. Why would we say that? If we look at God's standard and commands, all of us have broken them. You know, it's pretty easy, that, that one. Um, but he says that now that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, What? We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our mission. That's what we do. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what do we do? We just accept what Jesus did for us. Then we share that wonderful work with every person that you meet, if you can. That's the mission 
That's what's called the ministry of reconciliation, not telling people that they need to pay for their sins or they need to change themselves, but informing them that Jesus paid for it all, paid for them, and pleading with them to believe it and receive his grace. That's what this is all about. And that's how Ecclesiastes chapter 8 connects with Jesus and connects with your life.